we've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. You're not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We're at the brink. You have no idea how important Everybody, welcome back, Steve with Sus Fidel. I'm coming at you with the CES, CESJ Tag Team All-Star lineup of Don Broat and Michael Graney of the book Economic Personalism. Don, Michael, thank you again. Welcome back. Well, it's good, good to be, to be back. back. <laughs> <laughs> so, what were you going to say? I said short hiatus. Ah, it's okay. <laughs> no one, no. <laughs> Videos you don't go away. <laughs> That's right. So. If we keep going over and over, people are going to say that the uh, the podcast has turned into the CSSJ podcast system, so I'd have to change the title. There you go. Uh, so anyway, we're back to uh, part seven of the economics of reality and justice. So what does binary economic, binary econo econo economy? I didn't write this, folks. I'm reading it from another guy who says he's an author. <laughs> What does yeah, binary that's... economics recognize only two factors of production? What are they? <laughs> well, I, I think we should first define uh, binary economics, which was um, a concept developed by uh, the expanded capital ownership philosopher uh, and uh, corporate finance lawyer, Lewis Kelso. Um, and this came out of his theory um, about how economics, we've become a one factor of thinking um, that our framework is, has been basically thinking only in terms of one factor production, labor, for you know, as long as the so-called labor theory of value has existed. Um, and Kelso uh, observed that uh, since the industrial revolution, more and more production can be attributed not to human beings getting smarter or faster, more efficient, but by uh, introduction of new, more efficient machines. Or And now you have computers and artificial intelligence and robotics that can do much more work than a human being alone or even a group of human beings. So the problem with this is that when people are dependent on their jobs, uh, their labor incomes to survive, and it becomes more cost efficient for a business or an owner to replace them with technology, those people who depended on their jobs now no longer have an income. They, they can't be productive. And so then you either let them all starve to death uh, or you have uh, some form of redistribution comes in. So Kelso looked at, you know, what, what if you boil down what is producing goods and services in the economy? He says it's basically if you really narrow it down to the simplest categories, it's people and things or labor and capital. And I should say there's a we have to distinguish when we say labor and capital, we're not talking about groups of people like just the workers are labor, just the owners are capital. We really are looking at human input, whether it's physical, mental, whatever, entrepreneurial, or capital input, which can be in the form of lands, uh, structures, machinery, artificial intelligence, etc. So when you think in binary terms that it is the interplay of these two factors of production, then you also have to think in terms of production and income that, and Mike will explain this more, uh, but it's essentially how do we make sure that there's gonna be a balance in both at the, if you look at the macroeconomic level, how do you make sure that production and consumption stay in balance? And if some people can't produce enough to afford to consume, and some people are producing so much, they can't possibly consume the income they're producing, you get 
this huge imbalance and it has many other terrible effects. So Kelso saw that if we think in terms of making uh, the ability to become an, a capital owner equally accessible to every person, that will naturally solve that problem of uh, imbalance between production and consumption and people will be able to gain as they need to more income from their ownership than maybe from their labor. So that's sort of an overview of binary economics and Mike can maybe comment some more on the rest of the question, <laughs> which you can repeat. <laughs> Essentially, what Kelso did was independent of uh, some fellow named Carol Guantiwa, John Paul II, realized, you know, consistent with Aristotelian logic in which reality is divided into A and not A. So the factors of production must be divided into persons and things, because in personalism, there are persons and there are things, that is, human beings who are natural persons and everything else. I mean, this is basic logic. That which is, is, and that which is not that thing is something else. So not everything in the universe is binary, but in terms of logic, it is. So that what Kelso and Adler did was put together a system that was absolutely compatible with Aristotelian logic, as did in his personalist uh, philosophy, uh, not, no, technically it's not a philosophy, it's a theory within Thomist philosophy, John Paul II, with his personalism, which you will see in his encyclicals, uh, divided everything into persons and things, you know, cosmically, whereas only in the sphere of economics, Kelso and Adler put it into persons and things. That's why there are two factors of production in binary economics as opposed to the, the one factor of Keynesianism uh, or the infinite factors of some, you know, other schools of economics. Traditionally, they, they divided into land, labor, and capital. But land and capital, being technology, are both non-human. So what Kelso did was eminently logical, just divided into human and non-human. So the problem sounds like uh, logic is the key word right there that nobody likes to use these days. I mean, well, let's not get technical in that fashion. I mean, yes, we... <laughs> Man is supposed to be the reasoning animal, but uh, let's cut us some slack here. Make, make Aristotle great again? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think we can also look at it in terms of uh, politics and the distribution of power and how many of the, um, the negative influences that have occurred are because we're trying to compensate for the fact that labor is not the only true source of production. I think that it, there's a lot of reasons why people would say that it's only human beings ultimately that are productive and that any tools they create are just enhancing labor power. But that becomes kind of a difficult argument to make when if you take an example like elevator operators. Yeah, I was going to get with the uh, cops who direct traffic and you got traffic lights. Well, with I think, well, with the elevator operators, the reason I bring that up is that originally they required a human being to be in, in there and making it go up and down. And you would say in terms of how much labor input was in that, let's say you did say it was only the labor operator who's really productive. That machine and all the other gears and stuff, that's just enhancing his labor productivity. But when you finally you take the elevator operator out of that, then, you know, show me where the human input is there. Um, so this becomes a real problem in terms of policy uh, in that people, you know, the, the large majority of people don't own capital. They don't get income from ownership of things. And so as um, the, the, the economy becomes more imbalanced, 
what happens is there's a bigger and bigger pressure to compensate labor, you know, not based on some estimation of true market value. I mean, and we, we can get into that, why we believe that's the only truly objective way of valuing someone's economic labor is in a, a free and open market uh, system. But when you've, you have people who they just can't afford to live anymore, what do they do? They ask for, you know, a, rate, a pay raise, or they start demanding um, minimum wage increases. It's, you know, it's not because they want to, you know, throw the economy out of whack or that they're selfish. They have economic needs, they have families. And so you have this problem that most people are getting disconnected from the things that are producing more and more of these things. Now, in terms of politics, this is where people will, you know, if they're not thinking on it in an ownership, private property based way, they're going to start using the government to take away from those who have been hyper productive through their capital ownership, and they will spread it out to those who need who are underproductive, because they their labors no longer needed and they they're not contributing their capital. So Kelso would, uh, what he comes in with is a, a private property, free market based way to enable future growth to take place through, this is through the, the methods of finance, the, how money and credit are used to enable each person. This could be from the day someone is born, you can start that to help them become owners in the new technologies that will be built. And what this does, and this is the key thing in terms of getting back to power, we know what power tends to do. We need it. Every human being needs power. But what happens when it starts getting concentrated, and I think that's what we're seeing, you know, the this sense that there's so much, and it's not just sense, you see evidence of corruption all over the place. And if you trace it to, you know, what is accelerating this concentration of power, it's not that human beings are getting more evil, you know, or there's some human beings who are just naturally more evil than others. But you do have a system, you know, aside from individual responsibility, individual morality, the system itself is creating an environment and accelerating the pace of concentration of ownership and power. So this in terms of, and Mike will speak to this, in terms of how um, the social encyclicals viewed you know the na what is the nature of the human being the human person what do they need to, to develop fully i think that no they recognized and pope john paul ii also recognized aside from his his focus on personalism he realized that capital ownership is necessary for a healthy democracy and if you don't have it widespread you're going to end up with what we have now which includes this, you know, the um, great reset concepts, uh, which are even, you know, I, I think, let's say they're well-intentioned. The problem is they create a system that's going to accelerate concentrated power even more than it is now. Yeah. What basically something like the great reset or inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism or, uh, Democratic socialism, democratic, I mean, you've got a million different labels for these things. What they do is they take the Keynesian assumption for granted. Human labor is the only thing that's productive except when it isn't because capital only provides the environment within which labor can be effective, except when it gets rid of labor, in which case you don't need labor at all. I mean. This is why Kelso and Adler and John Paul II were so uh, avant-garde and viewed as, you know, so, you know, off the wall. They were logical. Who needs logic? You just need to have a, have a glib line. But what the Great Reset does is take Keynesian illogic to its logical conclusion. Now, if that doesn't make sense, it's not supposed to. All it does is say, it, it, it's an advance on Keynes who said, you have to have a job in order to have income. And Schwab very logically says, why do you need a job just to have income? Why not just give people the income and go through all the gymnastics of creating fake jobs? 
perfectly logical. That's the UBI. Yeah. Which is what stakeholder capitalism does. It simply expands the concept of ownership to include non-owners so that they get the benefit of ownership without having to be owners. And for anybody scoring at home that's looking at it and like, hey, that's crazy in the state of California or California, however you want to call it, there are four cities incorporating UBI, and I think it's Sweden or the Netherlands have, as a country itself, uh, started it up last month. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see how long that experiment lasts. And that's one of the things that Kelso, when he talked about the economics of reality, he was looking at such truisms as, um, well, the purpose of production is consumption. You don't produce something unless you intend to either consume it yourself or someone's going to buy it and consume it. And you can't consume what isn't produced. So if you're starting to just spread around income from those who are productive to those who are not, what you've already said is it doesn't matter that this huge number of people are not producing. They are getting incomes directly. And that, just from an economic standpoint, it's not sustainable. I mean, you, you've got to really, you, you're, each of us can be productive. I mean, and this is sort of an extreme example, but even someone who is in a coma, a newborn baby, um, people who are um, just not capable of being employed or, you know, for whatever reason, they can become owners of capital. Now, in the case of someone, a newborn baby, they're not going to be able to make judgments as to, for example, how they would invest uh, capital credit to purchase shares. That you, the Parents have to make that decision for the child. And similarly, someone in a coma could still become an owner as long as you have a fiduciary, a trustee, who's making the correct investment decisions so that the person acquires the ownership and then the, the, the fruits, the income or dividends are paid to that, you know, the person who owns it. So this, the whole system is geared right now towards saying only labor is truly productive, even though you will have Economists from across the spectrum, you know, the Keynesians and the market-based people, they, and they'll say, no, that's not true. We know that there's, so there's three factors of production. There's uh, labor, capital, land, or labor, capital, entrepreneurship. Well, the problem is when you look at how incomes are distributed, though, and you ask, okay, in a market-based system, if you wanted to find out what your labor input is worth, you would, and this requires transparency of information and, you know, access to information. You go around and you try and find the best, highest offer you can for your, you know, what you're able to give your labor. And that will tell you what your labor input is worth. Okay, so if that's the case and your labor, what it's actually contributing to a corporation's, you know, production is you know, a tiny fraction compared to what the robots and the automation and everything else is contributing, you'll starve to death, okay? But because you've got this mindset in, uh, this is in academia, which is basically bought into a one-factor thinking, then it has to come up with all sorts of ways to redistribute income. And so Kelso's just saying, let's, let's say, let's assume there are, if you look at this in terms of what goes into production, it's not labor alone or capital alone. You need both, the interplay of this. But you can start to, on a market basis, you can start to determine roughly what labor's worth and what the capital input is worth. And the way you could do you do this is that labor is a cost. You go and you negotiate for what you know as high pay as you can get. Okay, so that's a cost. You've got all the materials costs. You've got the cost of production. And then the company says they go out in the market and they will sell the goods. And if they're not stupid, they're going to make a profit because no one just goes through that trouble to continually break even. They want to make a profit. So that profit is what is due to the owners of capital. If you subtract 
all the costs from the price, the profit is what we would say is what the owner should be getting. And so this becomes a, a way that we can say, okay, respecting private property, which means the right to the fruits of the full stream of fruits that your, your capital produces and the right to control what you own. And in a corporation with shareholders, it's like you get a certain portion of control and, and the income. Based on this, if we can grow the economy through how we finance, how we use money and credit in such a way that everyone becomes tied into the growth, the whole growth by every year and the ownership of the capital that's producing this, we no longer have to rely on government to be re redistributing incomes. And um, under what we call the Economic Democracy Act, this is looking specifically at how new money and credit will be created. And right now it's basically financing government debt. I mean, our dollars are backed by government debt or it's being used to, it goes to these investment banks to invest you know, on shares that are not growth shares. And what you can see is just, I mean, it's an amazing fact that during the pandemic where everyone's, most people's incomes were going down, you had this tiny fraction of people whose incomes went up by billions. And it was, you know, what was it that they were doing? Well, it's because they were able to speculate on the stock market and they even had some money, extra money that they could use to invest in. So, or could it be that they were partners of the WEF and had inside knowledge already? Well, you know, it's. <laughs> I think that WEF is basically a way that people who are very powerful and the intelligent, you know, the the experts come together. They see certain problems. I mean, I think it is. The, the economy worldwide did slow down. I mean, it came to, in some cases, a grinding halt for a while. So you have to restart that economy again. And so you see that, um, what are we going to do about that? And they see a lot of the poverty that resulted. I mean, it's really, really serious that people are dying. So they see these problems. They see, they acknowledge that technology is replacing a lot of labor. I mean, they see the robots. This Elon Musk and uh, uh, transhumanism, yeah. I mean, they they acknowledge that this is a problem. If we can't figure out how people are going to earn an income, you know, we're going to have a serious problem. Kill them all. Yeah, well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, because you brought up that, because the opposite way is uh, utilitarianism. Uh, if you're not worth it for the economy, well, I guess we can off you. Yeah, uh, both uh, from baby infants to the elderly. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think not. I I don't believe that at least the majority of the people in the WEF want to go killing babies. Okay, but the problem is it starts to get ingrained in the system, and it will lead. As Mike has done a lot of research into, you know, the the policies in Nazi Germany at the very beginning, and let me like Mike comment on this. Well, what I was going to say is one of the points that uh, a fellow named John Perkins made in his book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, was that there is no conspiracy. There doesn't have to be one. The system itself operates in this fashion to concentrate wealth without the, the they call them the uber wealthy, having to lift a finger. In fact, that's part of the problem, is that, to, to back up a bit, there are two assumptions that drive the current system that are demonstrably false and are proven false every single day. One, you need accumulated wealth in order to finance economic growth. That is completely false. The commercial and central banking system were set up on exactly the opposite assumption that you don't finance new growth by cutting consumption in the past and accumulating savings. You finance growth by increasing production in the future, monetizing that and using that to finance your economic growth. Your economic growth is bound not by past savings, 
but by what you can produce in the future, which is virtually unlimited. The other uh, trump card that they think they're playing is that, well, only an elite can own. Most of these people in the world, they are simply not capable of being owners of capital. They can only own labor. And since they can't use labor, because capital is so productive, we have to take care of them. We meaning, of course, the uber rich. And unfortunately, what happens is that the more people you have who cannot work with their labor and cannot own capital, the more you have drags on the economy. And this naturally leads into the regrettable uh, decision to, well, we have to get rid of the useless eaters. We have to get rid of the unfit. Uh, even the people who are too old, who haven't saved enough money, well, you know, it's regrettable, but we have to get rid of them because we simply can't afford to have them dragging back the rest of us because every extra mouth there is means less for me. Okay. All of that is proven completely false. The fact is that even the uber-wealthy don't own. Their fortunes own them. They don't own their fortunes. Uh, a Danish journalist by the name of uh, Brooke Harrington, in her book, uh, Capital Without Borders, pointed out that most of these uber-wealthy, they have no idea what to do with money. They don't know where money comes from. They don't know how to use it. They, they barely know how to spend it. They are slaves of their own money, which is controlled by what Pius XI in 1931 called a despotic economic dictatorship, who of course view themselves as benefactors of humanity because they're the wealth managers. They control the wealth, not the people who have the wealth. I think another important point, Mike, that we were talking about the other day was how the wealthy actually are able to acquire more and more wealth without even using their own their own wealth in order to their own savings. Now, why should they? Well, you've got the government printing up money as fast as it can, and because there's no fixed standard to the currency, you don't have to worry about maintaining the value of the currency. You just print out what you think you need, backing it by your own debt. You see that at a lower like, level in cities, sports cities. How many? I'm sorry. I was saying, what? What did you say? <laughs> you see that on a lower level in uh, regular cities, just in sporting cities. Uh, example: in where I'm at in Charlotte, the uh, the owner is a mega billionaire, but he wants the city to pay for his stadium, so he doesn't have to pay for it. How many? Like just for sports teams in general, they got guys with money coming out of their ears, but they don't want to spend it. They have other people spending it. Well, of course. And the, but but they're pikers in terms of the global system of finance used by the uber wealthy. Mm -hmm. The fact is, these trillions of dollars that are printed up, in effect, by governments, get siphoned into the commercial banking system or into the pockets of, you know, the needy who instantly turn around and buy the goods produced by the uber wealthy, so that you have two streams whereby the, all the money that's printed up gets siphoned into the pockets of the people who are already ultra-wealthy. And, of course, what they do is pump up the value of, excuse me, not the value, the prices of the speculative shares on the stock markets of the world. So you get a double whammy. They already own most of the shares, and by pump, government pumping more money into them through the uber-wealthy, they profit immensely and geometrically by every dollar that's printed up that pumps up the value of the shares on the stock markets. So they, their existing shares get pumped up and they buy more with what the government gives them. This is economic growth. Thank you very much. Oh, Mike, you time just one, one thing I want to mention is that that's how wealth was increased on the stock market, which I think um, from what I could see, the economists are attributing most of the increase in wealth to that. Um, but you also were mentioning that in terms of real investment, 
that what the wealthy have is collateral and that when they're most uh, business transactions, you know, this is not going through the stock market, this is business to business. As long as you go to a lender and you show you have collateral, not only do you not even have to borrow past savings or use your own savings, you will have in effect created money through the acceptance of these contracts. And so if this is the way that all these new energy technologies, new robots, all this new capital formation is going to be financed. And the only people who have sufficient collateral are those who are already wealthy. Then you, you are accelerating this process on several streams. And so the, the question is not how do we take it away from them? How do we pull them down? It's how do we really understand the system and what it's doing, how it's really operating, hence the economics of reality. And how do we make sure that opportunity, you have truly equal opportunity for every human being on this planet. You know, we can't start dividing people up. We have to think from the moment you're born to the day you die, is there a way we can create a system that will every year as the processes of capital formation take place that we connect everyone to that process on an equal basis now this is an equal results it's just saying in terms of equal opportunity we have to look at equal access to the new money and credit that can help bring about this new capital formation yeah and you have to do it very carefully because Back in 1936, Hilaire Belloc wrote a book called An Essay on the Restoration of Property. And boiled down to its essence, what he advocated was not removing the disabilities from the non-owners, but imposing disabilities on owners to limit them rather than opening up the opportunity for the non-owners to become owners on the same terms that current owners were using. What he used was money, access to money and credit, which he did not understand, but Kelso did. So instead of saying that the rich are only now allowed to borrow so much, what Kelso said was, we will allow the poor now, the, the, the non-owners, to be able to borrow so that they can become owners of capital in the future. Not by taking away from the currently wealthy, but by participating in the new economic growth, the new capital that is formed each year in a, in a living economy anyway. But that did not answer the question, how do they borrow? What is the disability that disallows non-owners from being able to become owners? Collateral. If you're a non-owner, you don't own anything. I mean, that's rather obvious but when you go down to the commercial bank, even with the greatest project in the world, the bank off the bank loan officer has to say, well, this is a great project, but do you have any collateral? Anything to, to make certain that if we lend you the money and unexpectedly things go wrong, what do you have that we can take that will satisfy the loan? Because we're creating money. We have to cancel it by you paying it back, or we're the ones on the hook. So do you have collateral? And the answer, of course, is going to be no. Kelso solved the problem. Instead of having collateral, why not, in effect, rent it? This is what insurance is. Uh, insurance is basically collateral that you can, or it can be turned into collateral that you can use to take to a commercial bank and say, I don't have existing wealth, but if I pay a small fee to this insurance company, they will pay off in the event that this loan goes bad. Well, this will satisfy the bank loan officer because he says, this is a great plan. You now have collateral in the form of an insurance policy. Let's go for it. We'll create the money. You will put it into operation. You will finance the new capital. The new capital will become profitable. You'll pay us back this money and a fee for having you know, performed that service for you. We'll cancel the new money so that there's no inflation and make our profit with the fee that you paid. And 
you, you participated in economic growth and become an owner. You satisfied our collateralization requirement with insurance instead of existing wealth. Now, back to kind of what you were saying before and back to the private property thing and why is it so important. I don't know if you guys saw about the BlackRock uh, articles last couple of weeks, yes or no. You guys seen that? They're, they're, no, they're buying up tons of property at 15 to 20% above market value, buying it basically over so the regular Joes can't buy the property. Now, albeit it's got to get out of people's mindset to get out of these little cookie cutter areas. If you go live out in the sticks or somewhere and get your own property, you'd nullify this whole process. But these guys are buying up entire neighborhoods. They were doing this in Denver when I was out there. People would call it saying China is buying up tons of property in Denver, Colorado, and then turn around and either renting it out, which basically what? It was just renting it out. And even these guys admitted that they were going to rent it out so nobody could buy anything, no one could own anything, which even in the article, I'll send it to you later, the article admits that home ownership is one of the biggest things for an individual to have. Okay, I would say, um, as you're talking, that's um, one is talking about the ownership of land. When we use the word property, we're really talking about ownership rights in whatever it is you own, whether it's land or robots or whatever else. But what they're doing by purchasing something that's finite, and that's land, what they can do is prevent anyone else from buying it and forcing others to rent from them. Now, this we have um, an alternative approach to how land could be owned and uh, developed. And in this way, respecting the, the property rights of existing owners, you can gradually start transferring land that's owned by the government. And it's amazing how much, actually, if you go into um, very poor areas, you've got a lot of just vacant land sitting there not being used. But if you starting with that, if you can transfer ownership from the government to a private entity, we call the Citizens Land Development Cooperative, where every resident has a share in this, they're owners, they're part owners in the land, you can start acquiring land in, in order to plan it, um, in order to let people have some say-so over the development in the area without taking away anything from existing owners. So, you know, over time, you may acquire the land that this corporation would be able to buy plots of land. And so everyone could actually become a private property owner through it's basically corporation. And what this would do is allow um, every resident owner to share in the profits from leasing land. It could be to, you know, business corporations, it might even be to residential areas that in owning the land, um, in own, being a shareholder in this corporation that owns the land that you've operated, you're operating your business, you the business pay a leasing fee, a rental fee to the corporation and after it pays all of its operating costs, it's distributed as profits among the residents. So this prevents that monopolization of ownership over land, which is a very dangerous thing. You know, and then when you have countries like China that the government is extremely strategic, they're not thinking in five-year plans. I mean, they're looking 20, 100 years. And so they systematically have been going to countries that need their money, you know, African countries, you've got some in Europe, Eastern Europe, and they're buying up land and they are going to become the universal landlords. And that is, given their totalitarian nature, is not a great prospect for the rest of us. So, I, you know, I think that it's important that we look at all types of assets and, and also think in terms of property as not just the land, but it's the powers over and you know the right to decide, am I gonna uh, rent it out? Am I gonna just let it sit there? Am I gonna put you know my, my company, my businesses and not allow any other businesses to locate? So again, it's a question of structuring diffusion of ownership and power. Yeah, this was going back to that whole the slogan, I guess you could say, of WF. Oh. You will own nothing and you will be happy. 
Yes. Or we would say the counter to that is own or be owned. Again, this is why I tapped you guys, because you guys got the, even the slogans are contradictory to what they're pushing. I tell you, if, this, if, if people catch on to you guys, you'd be dangerous on this. Well, you're not comforting. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think you're helping um, to bring out this issue of ownership and power and the human person, what we need as individuals. It's another binary concept. Human, the human person as both a unique creation of God and also the human person as being uh, a member of society, a member of groups or organizations or institutions. And this dual nature that we have, you, we have to respect both aspects of being a person. I mean, if you can be an individual with, and not a person if you're out all by yourself on a desert island and you don't have to worry about rules, laws, offending another person, you just have to survive. Okay, that is a different kind of uh, situation and status than someone who has to live with other people, who depends on other people in order to uh, have uh, do survive, have security, and being able to flourish. I mean, if you're always on the edge of survival, you are going to have a hard time developing your spiritual side, your intellectual side, etc. So we do need other people. And this is, I think, what John Paul II really examines in a scholarly way is that if everything flows from this understanding that it's not just you know the super individual who deserves everything or the collective which you know is, is going to represent all of us and take care of all of our interests if you take these two extremes you actually dehumanize you depersonalize and so recognizing the social aspect in that part of what makes a person a person is the social environment that they create with others this common good is not just you know oh you know here's a bunch of stuff i need and that i want and it's in this common good and i can take it as i want to no it's the idea and free and pius 11th really expressed this well father free that it's a network of all social creations, social institutions, which could be a money system, tax system, government, you know, any kind of organizational structure that this network, everyone should be able to access this entire network, which he and Pius XI call the common good. So that it's, you know, it's like air. You can't, you're not supposed to go apportioning air. It's, it's there and we should all have the equal right to breathe clean air. So when you start thinking of the common good, which is a human creation and institutions are human creations, you know, automatically there's a flaw somewhere or there's a weakness that at some point a change will take place that will bring out, okay, something is not quite right and it is not allowing equal access. And it's also causing things to get, you know, human beings to start separating from each other. So um, I, I think that more than anything, you know, I, I think to just demonize the World Economic Forum and the people who go there, I, you know, they are on the wrong track. They are pushing ideas which are going to, I think, lead us to great suffering, great destruction. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, it is terrifying, but it's because they are focused on the wrong idea. And even if they don't accept different ideas, I think what you're doing, Steve, is you're allowing us to introduce a different framework, which even, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, um, but I think in the, 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 Catholic social teachings, you have the core of what's needed to really rebuild the world, because this is a moment that we have time. It's, you know, the, what the pandemic did with all the lives that it costs and the economic costs, it did bring us to a point where we have to sit and think, you know, what direction are we going to go in now? And we're either going to go in the direction that the Great Reset is calling for, which is very collectivist, 
or you're going to go on the direction where everyone is going to pull off to their separate tribes and protect mine from you or we're going to do we're going to come together in a way in a personalist way you know with true respect for every human being on this planet and say what is it that we need to do what system do we need in order for each of us to flourish you may so not I, be you know, catholic but you're speaking more catholic truth than most catholics are out there and if the clerics would pick up on what you're saying i think we'd be out of this mess overnight yeah well that's because it's natural law theory which is common to all of i thought you were going to say common sense and i was going to say no you can't say that yeah and you know with respect to that i want to clarify something that don said when she, all human beings are automatically persons by nature we are what is called natural persons uh, we're the, as you know, with respect to this world, we're the only natural persons. Um, of course, a Catholic would say, well, the angels and God are also natural persons, but we don't have to worry about them with respect to this world when we're talking about the economy, we hope, uh, especially since the uber rich aren't angels any more than we are. Yeah. But I'm sorry, did I laugh? That was a, <laughs> a Freudian laugh right there. <laughs> but, you know, even if you're on a desert island, even if you're a newborn infant, even if you're a fertilized ovum, you are a person. You may not be able to be effectively a person. Uh, a newborn infant is not going to be able to enter society and act, you know, as the same effective way as an adult who has, you know, been well-trained, has a well-formed conscience and all that other stuff. But he or she is still a person and is as fully a person as all other persons. We, you can't change that. So we, Don was using a bit of a shorthand by saying you're not a person on a desert. Well, no, she meant you're not an effective person. Thanks, Mike. No, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, you don't. And that's the thing about the natural law. It's looking at things that are unchanging you know they don't suddenly spring into being they are part of who we are or how we were created and you have it at least certainly those latent qualities which need to be in the right nurturing environment so that they develop in a healthy way you know throughout a person's life and the the social aspect of human beings the human person side that's an area of uh, philosophy and um, social and economic development that Father Free said, you know, it just has been invisible. People haven't seen that this is part of our lives, that we have to learn that when we encounter, you know, problems in the economy, problems in society or politics, those are human creations, that we do have the means and ability to correct even the most horrendous system um, and it, it's through both social charity where we understand, okay, these institutions, we do need them. Um, and you start to have to think of them as like your friends. You, you love them with their faults, but with institutions, especially, you do have a way of changing those. And I think that it's in the ability and the, you know, the education, first of all, to know that look, there's such a thing as an institution. What is an institution? And it, you know, we got one now that's gotten really defective and it's causing harm. Do we destroy the institution? No, we have to come together, figure out what's exactly wrong with it. And it's usually how it's excluding people or it's not fairly distributing rewards. That we come together, we see the defect, we figure out what needs to be changed and we start building our habits and our rebuilding our institutions. But people don't think that way. They think still in very individualistic ways, which can include the idea of individual charity, not realizing that, you know, this is not to say stop being individually charitable. I think that's, a, you know, very important and essential. But it may not be sufficient, and it is often not sufficient. It's really, you have to then, besides for helping people survive immediately, you have to start thinking about the environment that we all live in. And that's a longer process. 
But if we don't do it, we won't solve the underlying problem. See, Don and Michael talking about people or human dignity, whereas the philosopher for the reset is talking about us as being rats. So big difference. Yeah, no, UV Harari is on the got a video of him talking about this. They don't want the rats to to basically take our positions. Uh, he doesn't yeah. say who those rats are, but you kind of get an idea who. Um, so why is money so important to the restoration of private property? There's actually, you know, a going, they're going after money right now, kind of a digital currency, which there will be a social credit score. There's already happening. Uh, yeah. Plenty of people already have that, especially in China. Uh, why is money such a big deal? Well, if you want to get boil money down to its absolute essence, all it is is the means by which I exchange what I produce for what you produce. Right there, you have everything you need to know about money, which, of course, means you're going to misunderstand it completely because you have to explain that. Uh, if we go back to Adam Smith's first principle of economics, which is consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Why produce something if it's not for consumption? And how can you consume something that hasn't been produced? You can't consume what doesn't exist. You have to produce it. Jean-Baptiste Say, with his law of markets, took off from that and said, well, since you can't consume what isn't produced, then you must produce before you can consume. That means you must either produce everything that you consume or you produce something that you can trade to somebody else for what they produce that, what, that you want to consume. That transaction is money. So that you must, if, if the money system is set up properly, all money represents production, either existing production or future production. This gives us two types of money. Either we have the past savings money, and there's some complicated financial terms I won't get into that describe all the you know, technically, the various types of money, but basically it's past or existing savings money or future savings money. Past savings money means what has been accumulated from not consuming as much as you produced. And future savings money is uh, future increases of production. Now, if you want to become productive, but you need to purchase some capital to do so, are you gonna use past savings money, which is past reductions in consumption? Or would it be better to use future savings money, which represents the value of what you wanna produce with your capital? Well, obviously, if, you're a, if you know commercial banking history and central banking history, you'd say, we have to use future savings money to finance new capital formation, in other words, you know, create new capital, not past savings money, because the past savings money should be used for consumption, which means that future savings money should be used for investment. So how do we get the future savings money? Well, we put together a business plan, find an insurance company to collateralize it for us, and take it to a commercial bank and say, I have a plan, I have collateral, Will you please create some IOUs for me that I can use with using your name that everyone trusts because they don't know who I am. This is what a bank does. It, it basically lets them use their name for your money. Uh, and so I'll go out, buy what I need to put this productive project together, this capital project, and it becomes pr profitable. I pay back the money that the bank created for me, they cancel it, and then I pay them a fee for the very helpful thing they did for me, which was very valuable. And that's why money is important to be able, access to money is so critical to become a capital owner because the capital itself allows you to become an owner if you finance it in the right way. Yeah, and I just wanna to add to it what Mike said He's talking about the function of money and how it uh, brings a new production into being. But I think 
Lewis Kelso had a definition of money that we really should start thinking in terms of. And that is money is not the things we consume. It's basically um, symbols of, to, in order to measure the value of what we're exchanging or what we're gonna bring into existence. And the reason I say it's important to start with that definition is that as long as we think of money as sort of a, a thing that we consume or that um, we trade or that has you know value in and of itself, that's gonna lead to the kind of speculation on money that's going on right now where you have money being made on money. And if you think of money in terms of the way Kelso as a lawyer was looking at money, it's it just, it represents value, a way of measuring value that's going to um, then be translated through promises, um, either contracts between individuals or businesses or in terms of currency, which is just a generally accepted and spendable form of money. But it's really not the important thing in and of itself. You know, we, we say we shouldn't worship money. Well, that's absolutely true. We also should start thinking of money as a social tool for bringing about change in order to democratize ownership and power. So it in itself you know, it's, as long as our systems think that money itself, you know, is, is valuable in and of itself, we're going to be holding ourselves back. And we're also going to be enabling the already wealthy to continue becoming even more wealthy. So it's really, I think, in this process of thinking of money as a social tool, it's got to be introduced in a very systematic, feasible, accountable, transparent way you know, or otherwise it can become a tool for control. You don't know how badly I wanted to stop and just start playing like a montage of rap songs with money on it, like money, 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 <laughs> gold yeah. digger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. It, yeah, more money, more problems. <laughs> I'm taking it back to Michael's age. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> oh, no, we probably listened to the same things back in the day. <laughs> I didn't know you were smoking Truscan. But, uh, but, you know, thinking of money as a commodity instead of as a symbol, uh, what Kelso says is money is, is, think of it as a yardstick. Now, the way the system is set up right now, what you have is the people with money say, I own all the rulers. And... You can't measure anything unless I let you use one of my rulers. You can't go out and make get your own ruler. You can't make your own ruler. You have to use my ruler. And if you don't have enough of my rulers, you can't measure anything. Suppose you have something 12 feet long and I only let you have six rulers. Well, you can't measure something that's 12 feet long because I didn't let you have enough rulers. That is as, makes as much sense as saying that you have a productive project or you have existing wealth that I won't let you sell because I'm not going to let you use any of my dollars. Just to wrap a bow on all this, what are the currency principle and the banking principle and how do they offer or how do they okay. differ? Well, We're thinking the, money. I'm thinking offering. <laughs> We've, we've actually already answered that, but not in those words. The currency principle is that money is a commodity. The banking principle is that money is a symbol. Now, what that means in practice is that according to the currency principle, the quantity of money determines economic activity. The banking principle is that Economic activity determines the amount of money. You see the difference. One way, the people with money are going to be in total control. The other way, people who can be productive are going to be in control. And this was expressed in, if you want to get into technical terms, the quantity theory of money equation, N times V equals P times Q. If you took economics, you know that equation. I fell asleep during that. 
Yeah, the problem is that according to now, did you fall asleep in freshman algebra though? Two and a half. I mind math. It was economics. Was, I mean, I fell asleep during marketing and I made a hundred in it. It was uh, it was macro microeconomics in college that I just wanted to put a gun to my head through. <laughs> I don't blame you. But. If, if you, you think, think about it, m times v equals p times q is a simple algebraic equation. In freshman algebra, you learned that if you have one known variable and three unknown variables in the equation, and you only have one equation, you can't solve that equation. You will never do it. You can plug all the numbers in you like, and it doesn't mean anything. If, however, you have three knowns and one unknown, you can solve that equation very easily. That's what you learned the whole first year in algebra, is how to solve an equation by having one unknown per equation. Yeah. So what the currency How do you do Obama math with that? Does that work, Does that work in the new math? Uh, it doesn't work in any math. <laughs> What, what the currency principle does is say that M, the quantity of money, determines V, P, and Q in a single equation. Crap, we're going to get banned. He said Q. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the next Don't say it again. Right? Don't say it again. We got one away. <laughs> and what the banking principle does is say that no. M is unknown. You can't just decide what it is. You have to know what V, the velocity of money, don't worry about it, P, the price level, and Q, the number of transactions. Once you know them, you know what the amount of money should be. That's all the banking principle says. In other words, your economic activity set tells you how much money you need, and you can create it by carrying out transactions. The currency principle says, We'll tell you how much money you got and the number of transactions and the velocity of money and the number of, and the price level. We'll figure that out later, which is yeah. completely irrational. So you can see why Federal Reserve policy is just like, huh? They don't know what they're doing. No one understands what they're doing because they're trying to figure out how much money should they put into the economy. Well, the economy, meaning what businesses are going to need in order to grow and you know in order to pr produce their goods and services that's economic activity and that should form the basis of how much money needs to be created so money now as a symbol for future growth or um, you want to create it in such a way that it's actually spendable and that's where currency comes in um, and there are many different forms of money. And I, you know, to also just to comment really quickly on your, Steve, what you were talking about cryptocurrencies, that that, if you're talking about the representation of money is within an electronic form or digital form, it doesn't matter. As long as you know that there's true value behind it and assets versus debt, government debt behind it then whether it's a piece of paper or it's an electrical impulse, it really doesn't matter as long as you can keep track of it. Um, the problem becomes when these uh, cryptocurrencies are created and they're not backed by any new production. They're, you know, in, in essence, like a Bitcoin. How do you get Bitcoins? Well, they have something called the Bit Bitcoin mining, but essentially the rest of us have to use our dollars and purchase bitcoins so what you're saying is that bitcoin doesn't have any you know there's no value standing behind it except for something which is debt backed the dollar you know government debt backed so it's in the way that is created and how it's used does not fit within what we would call the banking principle which you know the intention is how do we finance growth so that you have balance between production and consumption in the economy. And that's going to depend on the human persons who are able to have access to it in order to acquire capital that will produce incomes for them. Yeah, just everyone, uh, I'm not, well, yeah, I was trash in my college economics class. 
I, I remember telling my, uh, uh, they, we had to bring a, 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 a plan together. And I gave him a business model. And I gave him my, my dad ran a sports bar back in the 90s. And it was, uh, so I sent it to them. Said, oh, this will never work. I handed in the USA Today article that had his top 100 in the United States. <laughs> so you had to remember when you go to college, you're getting taught by people who failed in the real world. Uh, so next time we talk, uh, three principles of economic justice, I think, uh, is on the is on the agenda, right? Yeah, it, it will sort of tie a lot of what we've been talking about together. I mean, I spared you the big lecture on what social justice really means, but we'll get into that the next time. Goody. <laughs> Don, Michael, appreciate uh, uh, somebody pop out the website for everybody here. Don't all speak at once. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, suddenly we're speechless. No, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to talk about the, these old ideas in new ways. What's the website for people to go to to check you all out? And uh, obviously the book's on there, too. Everything will be underneath show notes, underneath the video, unless it gets banned because somebody decided to say a letter between the letter of, uh, what was it, P and R. Yeah, between <laughs> P and R. That's okay. So it's... C as in Charlie, E as in Ed, S as in Sam, J as in Joe, C-E-S-J dot O-R-G. Very good. Thanks, guys, and talk to you later. Take care, Steve. Thanks so much.